prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Good evening and welcome, my friends. Tonight is Monday, November 21st. It's four o'clock here in the uh, mountain time zone. It's six o'clock Eastern, and I've got Professor Phil, Producer Phil, Professor Phil. It's hard to say. He's... He's been throwing me off. He's been throwing me curveballs for the last 45 minutes, y'all. So just going to let you know. Uh, we're going to do a couple of fun topics today. We're going to go over uh, the big news of last week, which was Josh Halley, the senator from Missouri, just ripping a new um, bum hole for uh, Director Chris Ray about his use of the FBI jet. Uh, I think we got a little things we can talk about there. Uh, over the weekend, I appeared on on uh, Unfiltered with uh, my friend Dan Bongino. I think I can call him my friend. He texts me back when I text him. That's pretty good. Uh, we discussed a thing called Pegasus. It's an NSO Israeli spyware. It's a company that produces cyber weapons. And another one called Phantom, which I guess I caught him off guard with. I'm going to say that's the fault of the uh, the Fox producers. But uh, we're also going to get into uh, the FBI leaking information to the New York Times. And who is Alan Ferrer? And why is he getting information that he ought not to have? Uh, finally, the title of this, this uh, particular podcast is politically appointed princes and how they're ruining america in my opinion it's just my thoughts um to stick around to the end of it we're going to have a opr wrap-up where we play the game of crime and punishment where uh, my friend real steve friend is going to give us a uh, a real fbi opr office of professional investigation investigation the actual details of the crime quote, quote unquote crime the alleged details what they adjudicated and how they were punished and producer phil and i will try to guess it so uh stick around for that uh as often we do, I'm going to welcome my buddy Steve Friend here to the show. He's going to chat with us a little bit and weigh in on some of these. He's got some inside baseball about what we think about uh, political appointed princes as well. So welcome, Steve. Thank you. I really <laughs> appreciate it and looking forward to ripping on the protective details that all these princes have. That's right. Yeah, I know you have. Uh, I, I never got to hang out with them or had to hang out with them. I have friends who are on the details, but I'm um, glad I didn't sit in a suit for 16 hours doing nothing and collecting per diem in foreign cities that these guys go run around in. So um, looks like we got a couple of people on Rumble. So welcome to you all. And uh, let's jump right into it. So Josh Halley, the end of last week uh, in the in the Senate was doing an oversight hearing of the FBI. We had uh, director um, or what is this? What is his name? What's what's Mayorkas's title? Secretary. Yeah, that's cabinet cabinet. Yeah, it's a cabinet level appointment. It's above a director. So, uh, so the the highlight of the show for me, and, and you know, they had a couple of good questions. There's always a couple of fluff balls, and I was able to find out that the FBI highlighted the fluff balls and didn't go uh, deep into the the piece that Josh Halley did. But uh, Senator Halley got a really great sort of setup, asking about his previous time being cut off uh, from August when they were questioning him the same way, and the the question was something to the effect of, "Tell me that you didn't leave a statutorily required hearing." to go fly off in a private jet to the Adirondacks, which of course is exactly what Chris Ray did. So let's talk a little bit about that jet. Um, out of curiosity, Steve, you ever been on the jet? Only stood on the outside of it. To take you have the picture. classic, yeah, the classic photo where all the SWAT guys stand outside, yep. uh, director With, or whoever, whoever the detail is, is in the middle. Interview stance, bladed, yep. ready for action. Ready just to stand there and look good in a suit. In a suit. In, in okay, a suit. not tactical. There's some tactical ones. Nope, nope. Uh, we we had to be uh, very professionally dressed. By the time that was for the uh, AG, but same plane. Okay, which AG were you with? That time was with Sessions, but I did uh, 
my my horrible stint was actually with the acting when he stepped down before Barr got in. It was uh, with Matt Whitaker. Okay, interesting. So I have um, I've got two buddies that now have did the uh, sessions thing. Apparently, he was flying around in Air Force jets. Does that check out? And Air Force pilots? I don't know. I mean, I I just know he rolled in in that you know that Air Force One jet, and they shut down the whole airport. And right, they're super important. Yep, yep. He just had to go to a. He gave a talk at a uh, country club for like a small Republican club. Fair enough. So the FBI director, Chris Ray, flies around in a Gulfstream uh, 550. It's seven feet, two inches longer from what I saw than the uh, the next model below it. And it was bought with counterterrorism funds. And it is supposed to be used, in theory, to fly evidence collection teams. And I have a friend who's on one of those teams to uh, high priority stuff. So if you remember, there was a weird thing that happened uh, in Tennessee. It was around Christmas, maybe last year, the year before. Somebody um, had like a truck that uh, was blasting out this this story that it was going to explode and then it ended up blowing up in downtown maybe memphis or nashville does that sound familiar so uh so anyhow that well, my buddy flew out in, in a jet and they collected evidence they do pl- post-blast analysis things like that so there's th- that's the the official reason that's the funding behind having these jets and they've got another one it's a, a q400 and i don't know what that one looks like and they've got a g5 which uh makes me think that uh maybe they fly matt damon and and tom cruise around in that thing right is the criminal minds plane right it's smaller um, and, and they'll go pick up priority witnesses and things like that, or people that are overseas and all these different things. So there's a, there is maybe a reason to have a jet for the FBI. I, I don't know, but, uh, the U S Marshal seems to do just fine flying commercial and they move people all over the country that way. Um, long and short is director Ray claims that he's required, uh, by policy to fly around in that. Sure, he is. I'm, I'm pretty confident it's FBI policy that he could change it in a heartbeat. Um, we've had directors that did not have these uh, protective details. Um, Louis Free comes to mind that he disbanded it and he just had one special assistant rolling around as his backup. I would be very, very hard put to imagine that there is much of a credible threat against an FBI director. And, and here's why. So this is a personal anecdote on this one. Um, I sat in the seventh floor conference room, the ADIX conference room. It's the eighth floor, maybe actually it's the eighth floor of Washington field office. We were waiting for Chris Ray to come and speak. And I was sitting on an aisle and Chris Ray walked right by me. And I didn't know it was Chris Ray because he's a diminutive human being that does not bring a strong presence. And the only reason I knew that the guy that had just walked back to me was the director of the FBI. Mind you, I'm an FBI agent at the Washington field office at this time. And the only reason I knew is because his protective detail walked by and I recognized those guys. And I was like, oh. And then he went up and he said some things that were totally not noteworthy. Kind of like, uh, I always say that Chris Ray's speech has always felt like um, like a mediocre coach in like a Lifetime movie who encourages the main character with sort of like useless cliches. It's just, it's it's utterly unimpressive. And his, uh, if, you, if you watch what he says in front of Congress and in front of the Senate, um, the House, you know, these oversight committees, it's kind of the same thing. This tackle hard mentality, it's just, it's just. It's weak. It's weak tea. It's not impressive. It doesn't inspire anybody. And um, so, yeah. So let's talk about the jet. There is a Twitter account. I think it's fun. Did we t- did we talk about this the other day, Steve? Yes, the, uh, you did. The Elon jet. So there's a Twitter account. And this guy named Jack Sweeney has created a bot. It's like a totally automated system. It pulls from all the publicly available transponder information that that's uh, published and for anybody who's not like an air traffic control aviation junkie i actually am an air traffic controller 
it was my time in the Air Force. I, I picked up that skill set and, and qualification. So the transponder is uh, tied to the tail number of every domestic uh, aircraft. And all the domestic aircrafts in this area, they all start with the N. So it all starts November. And there's a couple of numbers. It's an alphanumeric. And as long as you have the alphanumeric tail number of the uh, of, of any particular aircraft, you can track what its transponder is doing, when it files a flight plan, when it's going to take off, when it lands. And if you have a clever bot like this guy Jack does, then you can uh, put it on the map and you can show when it lands and you can publish things automatically. And so there's one of those for Elon Musk Jet, which is uh, tied to SpaceX. And he's got one for a bunch of different sports teams and he's got one for Air Force One. And uh, it seems like there should be one for the FBI director's plane because he's a public servant and he serves the pleasure of the president who was elected by the people, right? Like that's the idea. So this is a public servant in uh in a, in a public facing position. So one of those is in the works and that's kind of fun. I will uh, push it out on my truth. I'll push it out on my Twitter when it pops up. And uh, hopefully you guys uh, can keep an eye on when uh, director Ray is flying. Can we, uh, can we get some sort of alert if it ever lands in the Adirondacks? I think we could set that up. I'll, <laughs> I'll ask Jack nicely if he can set it up. So we do know that he flies regularly to Atlanta because that's where his family lives. And I, it sounds like he does, his family doesn't even live in the DC area at all. I don't know if he has just like one of these little kind of, you know, um, apartments set up that they can do it. I, I, uh, Comey scenario was, cause I remember he lived in the area and, uh, and the guys that were on the detail told me about that, but I stopped paying attention because, uh, Comey is about nine foot 11 and Chris Ray is psychologically like three foot eight. And it's just, you couldn't, you know, say what you want about the guy, uh, Jim Comey, but he believed what he was saying. He was, um, he was a hundred percent like a hard seller of some Jim Comey. And you mm -hmm. couldn't help, but you couldn't help but know that he was into what he was saying, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the best line I heard about him was Jim Comey's favorite time of day is in midnight when he gets up to get a snack because when he goes to the refrigerator and opens it up, all the spotlights are on him. It's <laughs> like, like it's like a long form setup for that. But yeah, uh, but you you got your creds from him. I got my creds from from uh, yeah. from director Comey. So anyway, um, and it's all funny because like everybody who has the same family photo with him getting their creds, it's like, <laughs> like it, it's like children. it looks like it looks like someone giving you the middle finger. Like if you look at it and you just close your eyes, there's like a guy that's sticking up like a foot and a half above everybody else, and then like everyone else is kind of even your tall family members are short compared to Jim Comey. That's right. Your class photo. He stood. He stood in the front line with everybody on ground level and the people in the back, like four steps up, were not even on par with him height wise. I would, I would use the, uh, the expression from a friend of mine uh, who was on SOG partially obstructed <laughs> view is partially obstructed. Um, all right. So over the weekend I, I went on uh, unfiltered. I don't know if you guys saw it for folks who uh, need to, you can go look at my profile and there's a quick link there. It was a short little interview, just a couple minutes, but we talked about something called NSO it's an Israeli company that creates cyber warfare tools and uh, and a spyware. Um, they they brought me on to talk about Pegasus, and, and I told Dan's producers that uh, I was going to probably pivot to talking about Phantom because I think that's the real issue. And uh, I guess they didn't tell him that, so I caught him off guard. I heard his podcast this morning, and he literally said, "You know, Kyle didn't tell me what he was going to go do," which is uh true i did not tell him i should have sent him a message but i sent it to his producers instead so that's funny um so let's talk about nso it's an israeli company they make premier tools like they're actually part of a lot of the the statecraft that israel is involved in um they are part of the negotiations behind the scene when israel works out a peace deal financial deals and they have access to um you know to to basically allowing licenses for some of their very powerful software tools 
and uh, and and they use that as like negotiation concessions as they are doing, um, you know, Israel to fill in the blank Arab nation, and, and you know they they've done deals with uh, Panama and, and so on and Mexico and, and a bunch of others. Um, kind of interesting that the the program that they have that that's called Pegasus was introduced in 2011, from what I can read. I'm just reading the New York Times, so you guys don't have to. I don't have any like secret knowledge here, but um, essentially. Pegasus is a no-click hack, so they can send you a file. They can uh, identify your phone number, whether you open it or not. Doesn't re- you know? Doesn't require any kind of passivity on your end or uh, active active measures on your end, rather. And then they can get everything. So, uh, what's everything look like? Phone uh, position. It's your microphone. It's your camera. It's all the files. It's your end-to-end encrypted apps. Uh, Steve, how hard is it to get end-to-end encrypted stuff when you're doing search warrants? Uh, Easy or hard? I would say tends to hard towards hard, right? <laughs> yes. But not impossible. There, there, no. you can get some. There's some that you can serve. Yeah. What What are the uh, What are the hardest ones for you guys to, for you to access when you're working in Indian country? Uh well, Indian country was a uh, none. But it was uh, all. It was all. It was all Facebook. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Was I mean, Facebook Messenger the preferred thing? Facebook Messenger. They didn't have uh, actually have cell phone Why service. They just. Use yeah, they Facebook. didn't pay for the number. Why is it Facebook? It's like <laughs> you can hit them on Facebook. Like, no, I'm not going to hit somebody on Facebook. They don't know a phone number. What kind of clowns are you? That's right. Well, yeah, it's standard. We, you go look for somebody. We set up FBI Facebook page for Sioux City, Iowa, so we could communicate yeah. with our victims. That's it. Yeah, it's true. Um, for folks who don't have any idea how broken the reservation system is, like we could probably do like a couple hours on that alone. And it doesn't matter where you are. It turns out like they're all broken. It's not their fault a lot of times. I feel like I have a lot of sympathy for people that live there, but you grow up in a broken society and like Facebook is your your the way that you communicate with people. It's your messenger. And it's just because they get free Wi-Fi. It's totally broken. All right. So um, so other than that, uh, end-to-end encrypted apps can be very difficult to access because they're often not stored on the phone specifically, especially if you have burned or read stuff, they may be totally inaccessible. But things like iMessage that go through Apple can be sometimes intercepted with the right warrant, with the right paperwork. Um, Pegasus is only... Um, able to intercept non-US based phone numbers. So that was kind of the big thing that they wanted to talk about. Uh, that's a great counterterrorism tool. It's a great counterintelligence tool, I think. Like we can both see kind of the the value in that. Um, and when the FBI, you know, asked about a different program that would do US because the United States is where they operate, they came up with this thing called Phantom. Apparently it actually even predates um the discussions that they had with the Bureau. Like uh, if you read Vice um do we have the Do we have the uh, Vice article? Did I send you that, Phil? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know Vice magazine, something or other. Let's see. It was called. Uh, it it's from Motherboard. So um, you know, so this is the tech part of the Vice magazine. NSO group pitched hacking um, to American police officers, and that uh, article actually dates back to 2020. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, if you go further into the uh, the article, it even talks about how the San Diego Police Department was being pitched Phantom in 2016, turning um, your target's cell phone into an intelligence gold mine. Um, and Steve, you've you've done some TV shows now where you get only just a few seconds to try to flesh out an idea and you gotta, you're doing sound bites, but long form, imagine uh, the being able to exploit the cell phone in the pocket, like assuming it actually has, you know, service, uh, the cell phone in the pocket of one of your subjects you know, where if you could turn on the microphone and you can access it's the location in real time, like the kind of power that brings. Yeah. And especially, you know, if, if they're unaware that that's even a possibility, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, you'd hear people talking about, you know, well, I'm glad I'm not saying this on when it's an open line. I mean, right. Because we still hear those on, we hear those on Title Three. 
Mm-hmm. Where people were like, yeah, if the FBI was listening, I wouldn't say this. I, I hear you hear it on jail calls where they give you a recording ahead of time. It says yep. like this call is being recorded and they'll be like, man, there's no way they're hearing this. Right. And then that's exactly what you're doing because <laughs> yes. that's like, what else is your, why else is it recorded? Yes. So um, anyhow, Pegasus and uh, Phantom kind of do the same types of things. It sounds like, but the scary part is, is when you have something that can turn on, you know, I, I mentioned on the, on the show, there are people that keep secrets on their cell phone that their spouse doesn't even know about. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's probably the highest invasion of privacy. They used to talk about like the levels of, of invasion of privacy and, you know, sort of like your bedroom was the highest level of priority. So putting a camera in your bedroom would qu- require the most amount of probable cause. It would be, be the most uh, exigent circumstances that they would try to do something like that because you have this expectation of privacy. Um, and I just can't imagine what the standard would be to be able to get access to a personal cell phone to include, you know, monitoring you 24 seven unawares. Well, how how about even just as as a principle of matter, like we can't execute a search or arrest warrant before six a.m. because it's deemed at five forty-five a.m. That's too invasive, and that's somebody yeah. you're going to be taking into custody. You're going to be taking that person's freedom away, right? And that that's that's a no-go zone. But like this is just kosher. Yep. And so, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that that that's why the FBI is always doing these so-called pre-dawn raids. If you just do it during the summer, it's actually not pre-dawn most of the time. No. Like 6 a.m. is actually daylight, <laughs> which is really awkward if you're used to doing the winter warrants and you're serving them in the darkness, um, which is why I'm I'm assuming that you prefer to do things like summons and, and have people or, or have people surrender on their own. Um, just way less, way less dangerous variables kind of come into play when you just have somebody meet you somewhere. Yeah, that and I mean I'm just I was always a fan of like ask my local law enforcement to go handle that. Like, they knew the people, especially on the reservation, they were related to half of them. But just in general like it's, there's a knock on your door and you see a sheriff's office uniform, that's at least something that's familiar to you. Whereas if you see like raid coats, like that's there's there's a certain mental, you know, gymnastics you have to go through well, what's going on. This is really, you know, intimidating versus just, you know, neighborhood friendly guy who's writing speeding tickets. Right. Uh, and there's something more um there's something more comforting about just your local law enforcement it doesn't have the sort of the the depth or the um maybe the gravity that people have when they see that those FBI letters they work in two ways right a lot of people will surrender and they don't want to they don't want to play any games with the FBI but at the same time it also amps up you know what sort of trouble we're in so I'll um I had a my my literally my first arrest the first day that I walked in this is uh this is one of my 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 Chinese uh buddy Lou was handing me the battering ram and I go in and we wrap this guy up. And I remember sitting down next to him and uh, you know, he had, he had some dentures that were downstairs and I went and got him. I've been a paramedic long enough to know that it's hard to talk when you don't have your teeth. That's a real thing. I'd rather people be able to talk than not. And he's just sitting in this room that's off the kitchen, you know, in handcuffs. And he said, FBI, FBI, you know, I didn't, I didn't do no FBI shit. And I just started laughing. And I was like, I was like, he goes, I'm caught up in somebody else's stuff. And it's like, yeah, you actually are. You're like a totally peripheral target. Yeah. Um, he was just like, you know, no, house number 19 of a, of the 20 that we were going to hit. And the SWAT, you know, guys took the the priorities and he was a low priority. And so he didn't imagine that the FBI would be knocking on his door because he was like a very low level PCP dealer and uh, had, you know, a little bit of, you know, manufacturing equipment and and whatever was going on there, I think they were doing dippers. That was a weird thing that they would take cigarettes and they would dip into PCP and sell those as onesies. And um, yeah, he he didn't do anything that would normally be on the radar of the FBI. So like you say, it's like 
for smaller stuff, for things that uh, you can de-escalate, it's it's definitely more comforting. But people do have a sense of what, especially criminals, real criminals, they have a sense of what's going to get them the FBI at their door and what's not. So if the FBI shows up and they didn't expect it, it's probably a big deal. Yeah, yeah, we, we our reputation preceded us, with the exception of the reservation, because like we were just violent crimes detectives, right? You know, and their their big thing was like three strikes. They knew was a Fed thing for domestic violence, so they were like, "No, man, no, I only got two. I only got two. I'll that tell you the number of strikes they have. <laughs> Isn't that something? So, um, one of the things that concerned me, and we didn't get to talk about it on the um on the show the other night, but. Uh, the guy, how, how much work did you do with Operational Technology Division, OTD? Did you ever have any interactions with them? No, none. None? Okay. So I'm going to just, I know Phil and I have. So when I worked with SOG, um, OTD is kind of an interesting tool. They're they're really cool. Like they are, if the FBI, you know, thought of themselves as being the James Bond, this is the Q branch. And they can do all the neat things that you can imagine. They can put a, the you know, a camera in a button and a, a recording, you know, device that fits into a, like a, I don't know, like somewhere in your shirt. That's part of the seams, super helpful. You know, it doesn't give it away any kind of thing. It's just like little cool, expensive technology. They're out there getting contracts for them and integrating them into use. And a, a lot of that stuff is really neat. And so yeah, we had a, a problem where we were traveling all the time and we wanted to have radios that were our radios that we programmed. Cause I don't trust other field offices to program my radio. That's my most important tool um, on surveillance is the radio. What's the second most important Phil? Uh, I think you can do without coffee. The most important tool for me, other than a radio was a pee bottle. Very, very low tech, but like you get real specific about like what you need. It's like, I need a one liter lemonade, wide mouth bottle. Like I don't want to be peeing on my hand. And if you're in a car for eight hours, um, and you have a hamster bladder, like I do, it's, it's a hundred percent a pee bottle. Whenever I would do uh presentations for executive management over at, uh, at the crisis incident response group, we they bring in all these like, you know, bureau executives. I'd always put my pee bottle on the table. I wouldn't explain it. It would just be like an empty lemonade bottle. <laughs> it was one of my proudest things. One of my buddies like that your pee bottle's out. And I was like, it's the most important tool other than the radio, man. So anyway, uh, OTD saw that we had this issue with radios and we would travel to other areas and we'd always use rental cars and stuff like that. And so they were able to create this really cool backpack radio that was the transmitter but the handheld was the actual um was the actual device that held the crypto so you just plug your handheld into like a cradle and it would run a like a larger 50 amp radio or 50 watt radio um it's a big deal when you have to fly and you got to carry all your stuff with you i can carry like a little radio but like carrying like a radio is kind of a no-go because you can't let it out of your sight this is a controlled item we can't ship it so anyway so they came up with some cool stuff like that um, and in classic, you know, government fashion, they also didn't ask us what we wanted. So they gave us the only part that anybody would ever see in the car, which is the hand mic, right? What color should the hand mic be? Black. Of course, right? Yeah. Sitting in the dark. <laughs> so they got the only white Motorola hand mics I've ever seen. Manufacture those? Of course. And it's like, it's like almost nailed it man you almost got it <laughs> but instead instead i don't understand how this happened so anyway um so the guy who's in charge of otd right now is a dude named michael f paul and he was announced in uh july of this year i'm going to kind of scroll through his little thing this is kind of where i see this is going to lead us into talking about these political appointees and their issues but this is kind of where i see a lot of the bad decisions in the bureau happen and what do you think his first job was in the bureau period oh 
Oh, he uh, he was probably a a consultant. Pre bureau. Pre bureau. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with uh, with consultant or so, uh, or educator. So slightly worse than that is in 1994 <laughs> he was an FBI intern. Oh, which no. is the other, and we've, we, you know, the yeah. kind of pipeline directly in. That doesn't mean that he's a bad human being. I don't mean to say that at all. In fact, we used to have really, really good people coming into the honors intern program, probably when he was an intern. But the danger is, is when, you know, these are the people that used to tell us at the academy, like, this is the best job in the world, right? Yeah. Yep. And then, yep. You, and then you ask them what jobs they've had. And they were like, and I was an intern. Was and then I was a MAPA. And then I became an agent. And you're like, yep. well, it's the best job of the three jobs that you had for sure. <laughs> like, there's no doubt in my mind that being an agent is better than being an hundred percent. And it's probably better than being a MAPA. Although there's probably some MAPAs that have more fun than we do. Um, they get to go home and they don't get called at three in the morning to go to like a federal prison because somebody died. But uh, all that being said, yeah, like I take agent over any of the other bureau jobs. Just for the paycheck. Yes. If nothing else, right? <laughs> so 94, he joins as a as an intern. He's hired in 95 as a MAPA. He works for CGIS in West Virginia. So this guy is full, you know what? We're coming up on 30 years of, of FBI service. Uh, agent as of 99, reported to Detroit. Probably did some interesting work there, I'm sure. Says he was on the SWAT team, so he's probably a bro. Um, but 05, you know, he did six years with a casework, and then he's a supervisor. So this is the classic six-year supervisor. Those are always our blue flamers. And for people that are not in the FBI, you know, everybody has a, a name for whatever the climber is, but the FBI specifically calls them blue flamers, like the afterburner mm -hmm. and um, a blue flamer is someone who's just crawling up the ranks, right? Um, they just, they, they're bucking for rank. It's like your guys that you saw in the military or guys in, in, uh, in law enforcement and PDs that are command track. So they, they're the first guy to make detective. They're the first guy to get off patrol, that kind of thing. Yep. And, and how well thought of are those guys? Man, they're birds of the feather. I don't think that they that they're aware of how lowly thought of they are by the rank and file because they don't care. No, I think that's they, true too. And they just any conversation you have with somebody who is a blue flamer, they're they're trying to fill you out right away. Like, are you in the club or not? Right. And are you going to help are. me? Are you going to yes. move me up somewhere? Do you know people that I need to know? Yeah, and it, um, it, it I, could be behind you or in front of you in that train. But like, as long as you're hooked to the train, they mm -hmm. they can they can definitely uh, you know take take advantage of that. And so the danger with those kind of people to me is always like, that's, that's how we get a lot of the bad decision. It's that, that echo chamber decision-making because they never saw anything else on the outside. And, um, anyhow, so this is, this is one of those types I have to imagine. I, my, my first boss was actually a classic blue flamer, six years to headquarters, you know, six years. And then she, I think she was at headquarters after three years, there was a small period of time where at three years you could go to, you could go to the Hoover building. She spent six years there. So she spent twice as much time at headquarters as she did at the field and training combined. And then she came out and, um, you know, she would like put her hand on my shoulder awkwardly and tell me like, we're, we're so much alike. And I was like, you're a single lady who has never had another job. And you have two dogs that you've abandoned and you have sworn your life to the entire FBI. Like I had a whole existence before this. Like I lived on, I lived on a couch for a while. I was like, you know, homeless and had negative five hundred dollars in my bank account. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought I was going to die more than once because I had illnesses and and no uh, and no health care. Yeah. You know, I joined the military like a dummy, and I was twenty seven, going to basic training with a bunch of seventeen year olds that were going to go marry the first girl that held their hands at airborne school. And I don't know, like I don't think we're alike at all. I think like uh, I can I can bench your whole body weight, and you can bench a broomstick. We just don't have 
real that many similar sort of things, but sure, whatever you want. And uh, that she went just, as well as you wanted. She tried yeah, to OPR me. She, sure. I mean, because, you know, you, she, you hadn't read chapter, what, seven of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Right. Break the touch barrier gently with your with your employees. <laughs> Let them know that you're one of them or some. It felt so mechanical and weird. It's just like I couldn't get around it. So uh, so anyway, our friend uh, Michael Paul, who is now the assistant director in charge of OTD. Um, like I say, I, I'm sure he's a bureau loyalist. There's there's some things about that that I don't hate. There's things about that that make me really nervous. And so let's think about it. Like he did some ASAC time. Obviously, he did that in uh, 2013, where he did the national security branch, right? Not the criminal branch. He did uh, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, intelligence, and crisis management, which is like SWAT and negotiators and stuff like that. And then in 2015, he gets promoted back to headquarters because that's, uh, you know, it's been two years. You might as well go back. He checked a two-year box for ASAC. It's time to go back to, to work in D.C. And uh, so he goes up there and he works for DTOS. Um, so that's the domestic terrorism operations section. I'm sure that's kind of some of your cases reported up to DTOS, right? Uh, when you're at Daytona? Yeah. they would. Yeah. That's what they would, I mean, technically. Yep. Yep. Anything that was, uh, you know, J6 had to go there. Right, exactly, and uh, we can we'll have another episode entirely about DTOS versus ITOS, the international terrorism versus the domestic. Uh, but so he's working out of the counterterrorism division. Uh, three years later, he gets transferred to be the um, the chief of the uh, the technology and data innovation section. So he goes from being a unit chief to being a section chief, or maybe he went to be section chief to section chief. I can't tell. Um, promoted to, <laughs> he was the special agent in charge of the Minneapolis field office in 2020. I don't feel like Minneapolis did real well. In 2020. No, I don't think you. I think you would just pretend that you like took a hiatus. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> wasn't that when Saint Saint George of, of Fennel Saint, was? Saint George went down. Yeah, yeah. We had the well. That was it. Was fiery, but mostly peaceful. Okay, Roger. So I'm tracking that. And then uh, you know, after that, he gets moved right back in, and now he's in charge uh, as, as the assistant director of of our operational technology division. So OTD would be the people that are playing around with spywares like this NSO Pegasus or Phantom. And I've signed some special um, non-disclosure agreements about the technologies that they uh, use for very high level um, compromise, you know, compromising of nation states and stuff like that. So we have some really great tools. I'm glad we have them sort of, um, but I'm kind of scared that the FBI has them. I think that they should be like maybe NS, NSA with no law enforcement capabilities because when you start pairing up intelligence and law enforcement, we get into this real world area, which is that's kind of the thing I think you and I both have an issue with yes. the, the the massive overreach of this sort of intel state, and then it also has the ability to put you in jail. Um, it's not like they can like they can use tools that shouldn't be had by most law enforcement. I would think. Yes. Yeah. No, right. No, no question about it. And and they don't have any qualms about using them. They're not even you know, putting this basic thought process together of like, well, is this a civil rights violation? Because it's just ne never computes with them. So, I mean, this is kind of the interesting thing. You went from criminal to national security and you immediately looked around and was like, something about this is off. Mm -hmm. And I went from uh, counterintelligence and then I went to kind of working everything, whether it was CICT um, and, and CRIM. And I always thought the whole thing was off because I was a grown up when I signed up. <laughs> I just was like, you know, I was I was almost 35 when I was at the or maybe I was 35 at the academy. And I looked around and it was like, you're not snowing me on this stuff. Like I have rights. I'm a I'm a person first. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a, a dad and a and a and a husband first, and I'm an American citizen second. And those are the top two. And they kind of run 
parallel to each other. And then like distant third is this FBI agent. Cause as we found out, you can not be an FBI agent, like really quickly. It doesn't take a whole lot. All somebody has to say is they don't like you and they sign a letter and you're gone. Correct. Yep. So when, so when you have uh, like a long-term kind of commitment to that idea, um, you know, if you're working national security stuff, you kind of think that you're entitled to the information that you're getting. It's like, why don't I have better collections on these people? It's like, because it's illegal. That's why Mm -hmm. Uh, you're not supposed to, that's not how it's supposed to work. And they, you know, you don't write warrants, you write secret subpoenas and you, you write FISAs and things like that. And you're working in a totally different animal. And then you want to try and turn that over and, and make that a criminal prosecution. Like people may be breaking the law, but you would have never found out. And and I'm not real comfortable with the way that they do sometimes. No. It, remind, it reminds me, like, so I did uh, narcotics and we used to uh, deputize, or, yeah, deputize these all different agencies and we get these jailers that would come in mm-hmm. and there's no Fourth Amendment when you're in jail or if there is, right. you know, it's sort of a derivative of it. And they would just like go up to people and like start putting their hands in their pockets. I'm like, we're like, oh, you, you can't do that. Like, what do you no. mean? I'm the police. And they just <laughs> have never been exposed to that. Right. <laughs> No, and that's it. It's what you're accustomed to and the sort of the 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 rules of engagement of of whatever your subject is. It's very different. And it's why DOJ has, you know, a Bureau of Prisons and they have a very different authority set. And um and in fact, our our um I got into a weird deadly force debate on on truth, which is a weird thing to do anyway. I'm not interested yes. in having debates, dead, but we got into a deadly force thing talking context. about. Right? So every <laughs> single time, so folks don't know this, if you have never heard a, an FBI uh, you know, pre-arrest briefing, but when we talk about what our deadly force policy looks like, the, the circumstances under which the FBI can use deadly force, one of them, um, it, there's a couple of call-outs. Like you can't fire at a, a moving vehicle solely to disable it. You know, you, you have to actually have a deadly force threat there. There have to actually be threat in your life. Um, but one of them is that there are no warning shots permitted outside of the prison context, which is really funny because we're never in the prison context because we're the FBI. We're not um, we're not Bureau of Prisons. But DOJ has all these different entities. And so people that have different authority sets kind of have different expectations mm-hmm. of what they can do and when they can do it and, and whether or not it's wrong to just skirt that line. I just think it would be awesome to be able to just fire warning shots all day long. Yeah. With a shotgun, right? With the, with the breaching round, just a yes. boom, just a what's up boom. It'd be yes. way more interesting. More, I, I don't need to wake you up any other way. Every morning. Mm. Mm-mm. No, six, uh, number six shot, just aerial Joe Biden style. Give it two blasts. Two blasts. Who cares if you've gone empty at that point? Yeah, and I think we could probably get a presidential executive order, you know, correcting the the warning shot with the shotgun. <laughs> I think he'd be down for that. It's better than shoot him in the leg. It's just shoot it in the air. Potential for some uh, Green New Deal problems if you execute birds, but they love windmills, which kill birds. So yeah. screw it. I think we're good. I think we're I think we're onto something there. You uh you gave a speech uh what this week and you you showed me a coin. I was going to let uh, you talk about that. Speaking of kind of expectations of when when you do the things and how you do them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my folks live in Georgia. Uh, there's a ladies on the right group, the, the community that they live in. They invited me to come do a, a speech. They have a monthly meeting. So uh, I followed up a medal of honor recipient. So um, that was, that was a tough act to follow, really? uh, but I uh, gave my, my 20 minute talk and 10 minute Q and a, but uh, my biggest takeaway was before I got to talk, there was a uh, retired agent, 29 years on the job came up to me. I recognized his lapel, his FBI badge on the lapel, shook my hand. And uh, he said, I carried this with me for my whole career and I want you to carry it with you. And it is a challenge coin. So anybody who's not aware of the, the challenge coin mythos within the uh, law enforcement military community. 
But uh, it says uh, the leadership test. Am I doing the right thing at the right time in the right way and for the right reason? You flip it over and it says, if you do this job properly, there is nothing more noble you will do in your life. So uh, I'm going to uh, carry this forward and I don't expect that I'm going to be walking the halls of the FBI anytime soon, but wherever I wind up, uh, I'll bring that lesson with me. Yeah. Amen to that. And I think the, uh, the converse is also true that if you are not doing the that way, it's the least noble thing you can do because you have the potential of really infringing on a lot of people's civil liberties and uh, destroying their faith in institutions. So let's talk about like, um, I'm going to put you on the spot and kind of bring out a betrayal that you and I both kind of experienced. I think they, they did a smoothie of, yes. uh, of, of information. Tell me a little bit about uh, the New York Times reached out to your attorney. I'll let you run with it. Shared some information. Yeah. So uh, so during the hurricane, the first one that hit Florida, when I was out of power and internet, uh, my my lawyers were frantically trying to reach me. And when we had a like one bar of access got uh, got through and they said, we need you to comment uh, or give us some guidance. The New York Times reached out uh, asking for comment on uh, the fact that you are unvaccinated against the uh, SARS-2 coronavirus. Mm. And that also you are under a disciplinary investigation for shooting your bureau issued firearm in your backyard. Right. How big is your backyard? Um, I don't, I mean, if you like whip a, a ball, like, I mean, it'll probably clear that in the next three neighbors. So I don't know. If you were to shoot your uh, bureau issued pistol <laughs> in your backyard, would it hit a fence and then maybe another house? Is that possible? In probably the house behind it. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, n- so not, you're in a- not smart. You're you're in a neighborhood. Yes, yes. Not in a, not in America like Kyle Seraphin. W- would it ever occur to you to shoot a firearm in your backyard, w- w- like outside of a deadly force scenario? Uh, I mean, we got a raccoon that sometimes go through, but you know, even Hell then, I just, maybe I, I just yeah, probably airsoft. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and you've been carrying a gun professionally for over a decade. Yes, yes, I have. I know, I know the cardinal safety rules and and the bonus one where it says know your target and what's behind it classic army bonus one that's right yeah i think that's one of the ones that people tend to forget right where's the bullet going once it hits or doesn't hit what it's supposed to capital police forgot that with ashley babbitt so it's very easily forgotten yeah that's that's uh, a whole nother can of worms if you want to <laughs> if you want to start a um if you want to start a truth social debate that is how you do it just so you know <laughs> if you're ever feeling like you got an hour and a half to burn and you want to just have your phone just buzz out of your hand. That is how you do that. So the New York Times said that you were unvaccinated. You're shooting in the backyard, which is kind of funny because I called your lawyer. Uh, I talked to Dan. And did he tell you he told you the name or did he not tell you the name of it? He didn't thing? tell me the name. No, I told you the name. OK, yeah. yes. So we look, you know, I called Dan and I said, um, you know, what's the story? Because Steve thinks that they got their wires crossed and they got the wrong information. And and this is going back to the end of September, folks. So this is not new information. It's just something we've kind of been slow playing a little bit because I've been curious to see if the New York Times decided to write about either one of us and get the story wrong. Um, but it sounds like either the Bureau gave the wrong information or someone at DOJ did or the New York Times writer Alan Ferrer, spelled Foxtrot Echo Uniform Echo Romeo, um, also known as at Alan Ferrer on Twitter um, and possibly on Truth. He might be keeping an eye on us there. Um, Alan Ferrer made the phone call and and was looking for comment on this information um that you know like you just said shooting in the backyard and being a filthy unvaccinated uh rule breaker who didn't care about grandma that's right and sure enough those seem to fit my fact patterns pretty well too 
<laughs> so we both found that come somewhat interesting. And Dan, uh, we talked for about an hour and, you know, he kind of came to the same conclusion that there was a really good chance that the person that he was talking about was me, but had named you because your name um, had those really cool SWAT pictures associated with it in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was more um, video talking to Dan at the same time. So for whatever reason, he saw your face and just thought that looks like a dude who would shoot things in his backyard and uh, and that's part of the reason why I actually put out that video, the, the why I got suspended, because I wanted people to see exactly what my so-called backyard looked like. You have a sick backyard, dude. Yeah, right. It's big. <laughs> so much. It's the, like the spa- like the whole state. The whole state of New Mexico has got like a few sort of frustrating points where people live, and then it's mostly just America. Mm-hmm. It's just dirt and elk and mule deer and scrub brush and mountains and other wild stuff and uh javelina and coyotes and you name it it's out there scorpions so we, we had this thing uh this is totally unrelated to anything but we had this thing in uh, april as the rains would start coming in they have what's called monsoon season and anybody who's lived in arizona or new mexico or i don't know maybe colorado has a little bit of monsoon season too but it just comes in it just dumps rain like like an actual monsoon but usually it's made of like mud and like horrible winds and it's really intense and uh, I started calling it monster season because when the monsoons would come and all the rain would hit, we would get tarantulas like the size of my hand oh my just creeping. All they're, I mean, they're harmless, but they're yeah. terrifying. And when yeah. you have a house that has uh, three ladies in it, um, it's really weird. We'd have another bug that no one has ever heard of outside of New Mexico that I'm aware of. It's called a vinegaroon. And it looks like a spider had a baby with a scorpion and it was friends with the face huggers from the alien movies so it's got this whip tail right and that's the tail spits acid which smells like vinegar so you know when it's spitting at you it doesn't burn people but spits this whippy ass thing and then it's got these um popeye claws that look like a crawdad and i guess it catches and eats scorpions it's absolutely terrifying and they're fearless like they're this big or they're this big and they run at you like in the dark, like the first time I saw one, I kicked it. I stepped on it on accident. I walked out of my gym in the garage and I just see this thing that's like the size of my hand running at me in the dark. And I was like, ah, and I kick it with a boot, you know, and I squash it and it like hobbles off, like with like half an arm broken off. And I was like, oh my God, what was that? And then I finally find out these vinegar runes. So the monsters all come out after the monsoon season. Um, but part of that is because there's a lot of America out there. There's not very many cities yeah. that are messing with anybody. we got rattlesnakes and all the other fun stuff too, right? Yeah. Um, all right, let's dive into our our hardest topic here or the thing that I think you and I are most frustrated about before um, I found out that uh, producer Phil actually has a, a hard stop at 7 p.m. Eastern. He's got a plane to catch. He's going to the Adirondacks. He's going to be going on a family vacation. This is a non-government private jet that he's flying on. Um, so these, these guys that get appointed into these political offices, so whether it's the AG, whether it's the, um, you know, the... Uh, the different uh, secretaries of of executive departments and uh, in, in our case a sub cabinet level position of the FBI director um i've been calling them kind of like politically appointed princes and curious what your thoughts are like you you've seen them show up do they carry themselves like they're just one of the dudes that just happen to be tapped for this job or they think there's something special they think there's something special but are very obsessed with looking like they're a man of the people like there's without exception, regardless of party, regardless of the president appointing them or whoever, they just just want to be. No, I'm just just one of you. But meanwhile, it's like, you, you know, that 
their ambitions lie beyond wherever they're at. Nobody aspires to be the secretary of Homeland Security. Like nobody. Right. And and the other fun thing is too is think about every email you've ever gotten from a from a director or from someone that's aspiring to be a deputy director. Like how do they sign it? Uh, with their full uh, for full signature, and then it's always got some sort of quote or Bible verse that's completely phony. So all the ones that come in from Chris Ray are all signed Chris. Correct. Yes. Excellent point. Right. Excellent so point. My, or the my three initials. Right. Or, like it's yep. just there. It's no big deal. I don't have time um, to type Chris. Just CW. Right. CW. <laughs> what his friends call him, I'm sure. Um, so you get the, yeah, it's that, it's that weird dichotomy of they're, they're trying to sell a brand of being like a humble person. My buddy used to call it the humble brag. Um, there's a lot of humble bragging that goes on, I feel like, in that sort of environment because you got to be a regular guy if you want to be able to get people to like you. And there's a, a whole cult of the director that I saw in support personnel. Um, I'm sure that's true in other departments and other agencies. Like, the people who are not guys like you and me who are doing sort of the, the, the actual front end work of the, of the department, like if you sit in an office all day, like it's really exciting. If the political appointee comes and knows your name or smiles at you when you walk by the door or something, I, that always nauseated me, but I, I also, cause I don't understand it. I don't, I don't get into it like hero that's, worship. That, that's why like the, the term, the seventh floor is carries a weight with some people and other ones that when the first time they're like, Hey, just so you know, this reached the attention of the seventh floor. I was like, of what? Right. And how how many floors are there? Is that like, is this like, a one to 10 thing? Yeah. What we yeah, have, what I don't understand your little idiosyncrasies, what, you know, what your colloquialism. So I'm not from here, but that's why we need producer Phil to come up with the seventh floor, floor crew parody song to uh, replicate what the Miami Hurricanes football team did back in the early aughts. They got them spun up because I think that would be an applicable reference for the seventh floor of the FBI. And and I think the thing that that makes these guys feel like there's something special and there's something to it, it's like they have a they have a protective detail. Well, who has protective details, right? Celebrities that people might want to like I w- I would guess I'm not a big celebrity guy, so this is going to be hard for me to try and dig some out of my, my, you know, I bet Liam Neeson has more threats to him than the FBI director. And I would bet that uh, you'd find out that Kanye has more threats to him than the FBI, right? But but I bet you those guys don't refuse to go anywhere without like a half dozen armed federal agents that are actually authorized to, uh, to, to, you know, kill in their protection. It'd be a lot harder, like protective details have like a lot of rules. If you are not a federal agent, they've got a wide range. And so you've got literally an entire multi-shift team that goes everywhere. The guy goes and keeps track of him. And then you've got a three car, you know, uh, motorcade. You've probably been in the motorcade before, right? Driven in it, which is why they booted me from the protective detail. And and it's <laughs> yeah, that's how that goes. And, and you know, and and then they fly around in a private jet, and they get to tell the jet when to to go for them, and then tell them that they're in a big hurry so they can leave meetings with Congress. They can't even you know be they can't even be troubled to go do oversight to do because the actual representatives of the people are going to question them. So it's just interesting to me. I think that uh, th- these principalities are are dangerous, and I think that's something that America has always fought against. But there's always this instinct to create kings. Like we love the idea. That's like some president is going to be able to solve all of our problems and do all the things for us. There was a funny joke. I remember in the onion when uh, George Bush was elected, like in early, 
This was like 2001 or 2002. I saw a thing on there and it said George Bush promises if he's elected that he will bestow uh, waters upon, you know, the, uh, the fallow farmlands that are suffering from droughts right now. And, you know, he will, and he's, and next year he's going to run for emperor or something like divine emperor. And it was just a silly thing, but it's like, there's an American instinct to, to hate Kings. And then also some people really want them. Oh, that's the best. I mean, the, the Royal weddings or funerals, like those are always like the Super Bowl for the daytime television. There's yeah. something about the mythology of it. You know, we all grew up watching the Disney movies or at least our, our age demo did. And my kids probably just uh, something completely different. No, I think people watch Disney movies, but not <laughs> well, anymore. Now, people ones are that have stop. princes and princesses, we'll say. That's right. That's exactly right. All right, let's not uh, let's not run over our time here. Let's get to uh, crime and punishment. That are our, our this is my favorite segment because I've read all these and people who haven't heard them before. So these are Office of uh, Professional Responsibility investigations. We uh, producer Phil and I are going to try to guess what the punishment is. We've read a lot of these, so uh, you guys will get to hear some of the things that uh, that they've investigated, found out that were lacking, some poor service on uh, on behalf of public public officials that you're paying for. All right, what do you got queued up for us here, Steve? All right, so quick note beforehand: there was a listing about the new whistleblower rules. At this point, this was in 2017, and it said that uh, if you make a protective disclosure to a supervisor in the employee's direct chain of command, that is now considered a protective disclosure. So uh, maybe uh, they should you know, review their OPR quarterlies going back a couple of years when they look at our uh, suspension status. How weird that it's in writing. All right. Yep. Yep. So all right, what's, all right. our, what's our first crime? First one. All right. Uh, weapon safety, safety violation. Mm. A supervisor failed to properly store personally owned weapon. Employee left the weapon in the drawer of a nightstand holstered and Employee's weapon was found by the do- employee's dog walker, a minor. The minor took a picture of himself with the weapon, sent the photo to his friends on Snapchat, then returned several days later with two friends to show them the weapon. While removing the weapon from the nightstand, the boy accidentally discharged one round through the floor and into the kitchen below. No injuries. Oh, no. So you hired, this is like a double sin to me. You You hired a bonehead who had access to your house. This one is kind of like a low-level sin, although it turned out poorly. Um, it's a supervisor, uh, and it's a weapons infraction. I'm going to say 14 days. Okay. Kyle Serafin has it. 14 days suspension. Well done, sir. I don't remember that one, but that sounds about right. 14 <laughs> days. So that's cool. All right. Give me another one. So, all right. Supervisor hit his minor child. The child's school noticed the bruises, mm. contacted protective services in mitigation. The employee has 15 years of FBI service. No prior disciplinary matters has taken parenting classes. In aggregation, the victim was a minor and the child appeared to have been coached to minimize what happened. I'm going to say uh, summary termination, I hope. Wow, you guys are hard. 40 day suspension checks i guess we don't know the severity of it like i don't know if you was it was the bruising on the face it doesn't i'm I'm imagining the kid showed up with a shiner i mean if the kid has like bruises on the hand i don't know or on the butt so this is this yeah so and then and then in in lieu of those first first two this is a great way to finish it uh employee falsified academic credentials on an fbi ses application by falsely indicating the employee had a college degree although having a college degree was not required the employee nevertheless improved their prospects by falsely claiming the bachelor's degree in business administration, and they were selected for the job over other degreed applicants. They lacked candor. In mitigation, the employee had 30 years of FBI service, positive performance record. In aggravation, they gained an unfair advantage for an extended period of time. Hmm. 
I'm going to say that they were promoted to the next level, whatever was above the, the job that they actually got. That seems appropriate. Dismissal. Yeah, like yep. You you lie about your college diploma. You get fired. You tune up your child. You get a month home. And there you go, folks. That is how the FBI works. I think it's worth noting that lack of candor, which is the thing that we've all been striving to stay away from, which is why we're saying things honestly, and we've answered questions honestly, it's going to parlay into something really fun uh, in about a week from today. On the uh, on the twenty eighth, I think we're gonna have a. I'm I'm flying to Wisconsin. I'm gonna hang out with one of my buddies. He's gonna be coming public, and uh, you're gonna get a chance to hear about someone who refused to participate in lack of candor, who told the truth, and was removed anyway, um, and is in the same situation as Steve and I. So we will soon be the three musketeers, and uh, yeah. So I so my my story. You know, I'm I'm a polarizing type of person. I tend to say what I think, and I don't really care if people don't like it. And most people are okay with it. And if you don't like it, so be it. That's that's the way it goes. I think Steve is a little bit more moderated than I am, uh, but I think his his issues that he that he said were were equally firm. And so the two of us kind of, you know, they're going to call his a, a refusal of orders. They're going to call mine bad conduct, talking to a cop because I was doing something scary with a gun. The the last one, this uh, you know, our friend coming out is is absolutely black and white. Uh, what he did was go to Congress. And the FBI has squashed him and his story is so sympathetic. It's, it's impossible not to be sympathetic. If you have a problem with what went on uh, with our buddy, then I think the, the problem is yours and yours alone. So we're going to leave it at that. Uh, we'll try to get back here uh, at least one more time before uh, I fly off. I'm flying off this weekend. And um, yeah, uh, thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks for jumping on here and sharing your challenge coin and your, uh, your expertise on security details, which you dislike. Phil, your technical expertise. Thanks for uh, letting the Bureau compromise your computers. You'll notice that Phil has already updated his bio to say that he is the producer of the show. This is Phil's 100% justifiable hobby. So we're giving him chances to sit in his room by himself and do the thing that he likes to do, which is play with the stuff. And I'm very appreciative of, of his skill set. Uh, folks, That if you do give to the Gifts and Go, we have already, um, we've already dispersed uh, about $9,000 to help our buddy out. It covered the cost of getting his own personal possessions back that the FBI sort of kidnapped and held ransom. So uh, it's going to a very good cause right now. Like I'm not, it's not going to my pocket. It's not funding my very expensive uh, free flag background that my dad gave me. And uh, it's not funding the the slowly draining uh, bottle of uh, bourbon that's in the corner there. It's it's just going to help this guy out who's got, uh, who's really facing down some hard times. So um, we really appreciate your, your support. And uh, Phil, apparently you were muted when you said that. So that didn't help out. <laughs> I'm getting it from, I'm getting it from the chat. <laughs> so what Phil said is please uh, check out our gifts and go. It's, at the, it's pinned to the top, probably of uh, the show notes. It's also in my profile. And with that, um, it's about to uh, be pumpkin 30 for you. It sounds like you're going to get some children's home. So thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, Steve, anything you say for the good night? Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. All right. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.